welcome to the Think Factory podcast. We got one question for you. What keeps you up at night? Welcome to the Think Factory podcast powered by OGC Solutions. And I'm your host, Chris Santamassimo from OGC Solutions. We really value our relationships with groups like Financial Executives International or FEI that support the executives that really are the heart of mid-cap companies and emerging companies. And I had the privilege, as I do on an annual basis, uh, to provide the FEI members with a presentation about the legal issues that directly impact them. You know, some of the more cutting edge issues that are impacting the operations, the, the risk exposure, uh, and just business in general. And so I got the opportunity to make this presentation part of the podcast network and hope that you'll take it and enjoy it as well. If you have any questions about how the issues I discussed during this presentation would apply to your business or to you individually, feel free to give us a call for a discussion. Enjoy and see you next time at the Think Factory podcast. Hello, and thank you for joining FEI's Private Company Priorities Conference. This afternoon, we are pleased to welcome Christopher Santamassimo, who will be moderating our first session of the day, Top Priorities, Corporate, Legal, and Regulatory Topics for Private Companies. Christopher? Thank you so much, Boyana, and thanks for the opportunity to speak with everyone today. So, we're here to talk about some of the issues that we see in the course of representing mid-cap companies and, and emerging companies as well, that is legal and regulatory issues, and, and some of the corporate priorities that fold into those legal and regulatory issues. So again, I'm Chris Santamassimo. I'm a partner with Outside General Counselor OGC Solutions here in New Jersey. Um, the perspectives that I have uh, to share with you today really come from the trenches that is representing companies on a day-to-day -day basis and really be partnering with them as their general counsel and the, and the uh, point person, I guess you'd say, for the virtual legal department that we uh, provide. So these are really, you know, ripped from the headlines or ripped from our practice on a daily basis with these companies. So I thought I'd tell you just a bit about our firm to put everything in perspective. Um, you know, what we find is that emerging companies and mid-cap companies quite often uh, don't have the luxury because they're not large enough or they don't have enough work uh, to keep one general counsel busy. And certainly they don't have the ability to hire an entire legal department to cover the spectrum of their needs. And so they find themselves at a bit, a bit of a disadvantage because uh, they start to keep their law firms or their lawyers at arm's length. They try not to use them very much because of the, the time sensitive costs. And also they complain about rates, of course. So what we try to do at our firm is to create a team of 19 lawyers that can truly become a virtual legal department on a fractional basis. So we've got practitioners that handle all of the relevant issues that a company in the mid-cap space typically needs. Uh, and we're unique in that respect, as well as the fact that we can offer a fixed fee so that a company knows on a month-to-month -month basis or an annual basis what their spend is going to be. Uh, for legal issues. And what's nice about that is that it brings our lawyers and me in particular uh, close to the company so that we're dealing not only with discrete legal issues in a vacuum, but we deal with the business as well. And we are there to provide uh, advice on business and legal issues as they arise and in many cases prevent problems from occurring in the, in, in the first place. So what's nice about that is that it, it brings us very close to the the gritty legal issues so that we can shape our, our legal strategy around it. And those are the very issues that I'm gonna to talk to you about today. 
you know, naturally a mid-cap company deals with a, a whole garden variety of issues uh, that come across the desks of an executive, in particular a CFO. Uh, so these are really the highlights of those issues. Um, and I'll talk to you about some of the, you know, some of what we see in practice and how they work out from a business perspective as well. One thing I wanted to mention to folks is that we've actually uh, taken to heart uh, the idea that we're going to be a business partner with our clients. And one of the ways that we've done that is to is to highlight those clients, uh, both in written content as well as provide them a, a podcast opportunity that we created just about a month ago called Think Factory. So this really is an open platform for you folks as individual professionals as well as officers of, of your companies talk either about yourselves or your company, things that are interesting from a business perspective, what keeps you up at night, what makes your companies unique, et cetera. So I would love uh, anybody who's interested to reach out and uh, talk, talk to me about scheduling uh, an interview. Uh, really easy, we can do it virtually or in person. So I hope uh, you take advantage of the opportunity. The first place I'd like to start is just at a high level to talk to you about where we see the majority of the issues uh, that companies face day to day. You know, naturally, uh, as a CFO, uh, many of you have become not only the finance leads, but also the administrative, regulatory, and uh, leads in other places like managing human resources or being the point person for that, as well as managing your lawyers. So you're seeing a lot of different issues. But the, the two main categories of issues that we see are going to be in contracts, uh, which really shape relationships with your customers and your vendors, as well as in human resources and labor. So those are gonna be the primary things we talk about, but also uh, some other issues like real estate um, and some general business issues. So these are the issues that I, that I talk to clients about on a, on a daily and weekly basis as we help them prepare contracts, deal with disputes with customers and vendors on contracts, uh, and really just manage the life cycle of those agreements. Um, you know, what we, what we hear sometimes is, hey, I wanna send a contract over to, to the lawyers uh, to get their read on it. Um, what happens many times, unless you control it, is that the business folks will kick a contract over the fence, uh, so to speak, uh, just email a contract to say, hey, we just wanna have you take a look at this to see if it looks normal or if it, uh, we just want another set of eyes on it. Reviewing a contract in a vacuum doesn't make any sense because what we're trying to do is focus on the business first. That is, what are you trying to achieve as a, as a producer, a manufacturer, a service provider with your customers, or a buyer of goods and services and shape the document around the transaction rather than the reverse. Quite often, if you just talk about standardized legal terms, you're gonna miss the business and you're gonna miss the fine points. So number one is making sure that whoever your lawyer is and whoever your business people are, are conscious of the terms. You, you spend a lot of time at the beginning of a relationship to really refine those terms and let the paper be shaped around them. Um, I think the next phase of that is to make sure that you've got terms and conditions and agreements that are updated, that are current and really reflect what you're doing today, as opposed to what you were doing five, six, 10 years ago when the contract may have been drafted. So the idea of updating your contracts is really not something that you do you know, every once in a while, but it, the contracts that you work with should be living documents. Um, so the living document should be reflecting your, your current business. So I would urge everybody to make sure that, you know, you do this on a, on a periodic basis and shape the documents as you go. Um, a place where I think the terms and conditions of a document don't often fit a transaction is what are the expectations uh, of the parties and what are the penalties? You know, the, 
a relationship either on the customer side or on the vendor side usually starts with some sort of a proposal. Um, I see somebody wants to talk about wage and hour lawsuits and we'll certainly get to that later in the presentation. So the, you know, the, the expectations for both sides is something that's reflected usually in a proposal. Maybe it's a high level document, which talks about, you know, pricing and what's being offered. And, you know, I think the proposal and those discussions are helpful to get the conversation started, but it shouldn't be the end of the uh, end of the story because whatever you talk about as you shape the transaction at the beginning of the, of this discussion or relationship should make its way into the contract documents. A, a common term in your contracts is going to say that the paper supersedes anything that you talked about before it was signed. So anything that's been memorialized in emails, verbal conversations, the proposal itself, updated proposals, needs to get into the contract because you don't want to be disappointed to find that the contract doesn't reflect something that was promised at the proposal stage or the discussion stage. So making sure that you're thinking of a transaction as, as a living being, if you will, uh, where that starts at the uh, discussion and proposal stage, goes through contracts into implementation, the better off you're going to be in terms of setting expectations uh, and actually delivering on those. You also want to talk about what kind of penalties there are um, if you don't meet expectations, because it's going to happen. It's going to happen in the course of business, um, whether you're the, the provider or the buyer. So you need to understand and agree on what exactly the damages and penalties are. Uh, and that really is going to shape the entire transaction so that you've got a document that will survive that's really going to get, is going to empower you to manage the relationship, especially if it's an ongoing relationship with ongoing services or, um, you know, a long chain of producing some sort of good and supplying it to a customer. You know, the force majeure clause um, is something that you see in almost every commercial contract, and it really uh, took on a life of its own during the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, and I just want to highlight it here because I think there's a lot of misunderstanding around it. So a force majeure clause, uh, exactly what it stands for in French, I'm not exactly sure, but um, the clause is intended to tell the parties what happens if, is it, what happens when there's a delay in performance because of some condition or some event that can't be predicted. It usually refers to acts of God, if you will, uh, storms, pandemics, and epidemics. Uh, it might be shipping delays. It could be a strike at the port. It could be a, just about everything that the parties really can't put their fingers on at the time of the transaction and it's out of their control. And it will give the parties some element of relief if there's a delay. During the pandemic, it became a huge issue because of supply chain challenges, uh, transportation challenges, et cetera. Uh, and and many, many parties were uh, a little alarmed or surprised to find out that it didn't give them relief on certain areas like pricing. You know, when your raw materials go through the roof uh, because of, a, of an event you can't control like a pandemic, the force majeure clause is typically not going to help you. Uh, what it will do is give you relief on delay or timing and talk about how long that delay can be. Um, but quite frankly, it's not going to do much more than that. So don't take a lot of stock in your force majeure clause to help you beyond the delay stage or the delay in uh, performance uh, and spend some time to understand exactly what happens when there is a delay or make sure that your pricing clause uh, especially if you've got a long-term contract is going to give you some relief in the event of a, an event in the market that you can't foresee. Injunctions. Um, you know, c clients often call and say, you know, I got a party who's breaching and I want to go out and get an injunction uh, to prevent them or 
motivate them to act. Uh, and there's another, this is an area of misunderstanding too. You know, we, we've got uh, provisions and contracts many times that'll say, look, in the event of a dispute, here's how we're going to handle it, but the parties can go get an injunction if it's applicable. The problem is that there aren't too many times when you can get an injunction in a typical supply contract or commercial contract where we see that happening, where we see injunctions get issued or not, uh, or being argued about at least is, is when there's some kind of irreparable harm that'll result if an injunction doesn't get issued. And that's, uh, for example, when you talk about a non-compete or other employment restrictive covenant, those are the types of agreements that if you don't go get an injunction and prevent a salesperson from not breaching uh, or prevent them from breaching their agreement, you know, the, the entire uh, intent of the contract will be lost because there's just no way to turn back the clock. So my point here is don't think you can go just go get an injunction and force a supplier to uh, produce or force a customer to uh, to pay or perform on their end of the contract and accept your goods and services uh, because quite, it's a very difficult bar to get over in order to get an injunction. So spend time with your lawyer to understand exactly what your rights are in that area. I mentioned transportation and logistics here because it's a huge issue with, or has been a huge issue in the market. I think uh, what, from what I've seen in a variety of sectors is that that issue is has really uh, settled down quite a bit. It's more available. Prices are coming down when it comes to uh, overseas cargo shipments, but it's still going to be an issue. So make sure that as you think about your agreements, you're planning for that, planning for what happens when uh, your, your shippers or your truck transportation or train transportation providers uh, all of a sudden raise their rates because that's what the market, the going market rates are. This is uh, maybe uh, just a little, it seems like it might be out of order because it doesn't really flow from the prior uh, points I made, but it's an important one because I've seen it multiple times uh, in the last year and a half. And that is in an effort to try and reduce costs where clients will go out and, and contract with foreign uh, computer programmers, developers to create software or create solutions or integrations. Uh, I've seen a couple of them get burned um, when they don't really vet the, vet the supplier, figure out where the code is going to get stored, what the mile posts are, uh, and when you're going to pay for them. So I, I just caution you generally to know who you're dealing with. Just because you got a great deal on the table from a foreign uh, developer doesn't mean it's a good deal. Uh, in terms of security. So make sure that you're providing for, in your agreement, uh, and you, uh, the things about uh, where the code is gonna be stored, who's gonna control it, who owns it, and when you get it. And don't pay, pay the relationship too far forward before you actually get what you're promised. Think about alternate suppliers too. Um, th this was a huge issue in an emergency fashion, of course, during the pandemic. Um, I, I just tell uh, clients that especially when you're dealing with something that's critical to your operation, you know, having alternate suppliers on tap and the ability in your contracts to use alternate suppliers, especially when there's a force majeure event and your, your primary suppliers can't supply. That's a huge uh, win in terms of risk management if you can uh, support that. So don't forget, if you've got questions that you want to cover, please uh, drop them in the, uh, the Q&A as well as feel free to contact me after the, uh, the session's over and you'll have my contact information at the end. This is another place uh, in contracts when you're dealing with customers, it's about, it's about pricing. You know, inflation has been a, a major driver in terms of cost and pricing. Um, and the again, the force majeure clause is not gonna help you. 
So in, in, when, when your costs get skewed in the upward direction. So I tell clients that we got to make sure that we provide for some sort of mechanism, maybe a market driver like a, uh, like a consumer price index or a European manufacturer's index that'll provide us a guide in terms of how we can raise prices and when, when it comes to supplying customers. So be really careful about your long-term pricing promises. And if you're gonna, if you're gonna agree to some long-term relationship, uh, give yourself some flexibility to rise, uh, raise prices, especially when the prices for your raw materials or your other inputs uh, might rise without, your, uh, without any control by you. Trade credit lines is, is really the, the next issue we deal with. And that is you know, making sure that if you extend trade credit to your customers, you gotta protect yourself in the event they don't pay. Um, the problem is that many uh, many companies don't protect trade credits. They only think about protecting uh, credit, you know, credit when it comes to hard goods, for example, or maybe they don't protect them at all. So what we tell clients is that uh, there's a huge benefit. It's almost like an insurance policy if you can perfect, uh, that is to properly file liens for your trade credit. Um, it, it's a fairly simple process in terms of how it's described, but it's very important to do it right. In order to protect a lien for trade credit, it's called a purchase money security interest, meaning you're providing a customer with some amount of purchase money to buy your products. Unless you get cash uh, on delivery or cash in advance, you are providing purchase money for your products, even for a short term. The way to protect those lines is to file what's called a UCC one form it's a, it's a simple lien. Uh, you would typically file either purchase orders or a contract that goes along with it, a support for the form. But here's the really, here's the important rub. You have to give notice to other creditors that your customer has uh, that pre-existed your lien in order to get special protection. That is, you've got to let their revolving credit line bank or other, uh, other uh, creditors know that you're actually providing more value in the form of purchase money. Um, and that's a pretty simple process if you've got a system to do it. The problem is many companies don't, or they don't have the resources for it. So what we typically would uh, tell our clients is work with a service like CT or CSC. There are others out there that can actually know who the creditors are, search the databases, identify them, and provide them notice. The reason that you do this is you're going to get special priority in the event your customer files for bankruptcy you're going to be treated, those expenses are going to be treated as administrative expenses, which get priority in some cases that are even greater than the, the secured creditors. So it, it's it's going to help you quite a bit. And I've seen lots of clients over the years get burned when they don't do it. So think seriously about that. you got to manage it too. you got to watch out for slow payers and really start to manage the credit line. Um, but make sure that you're protected in the form of that lien. It's going to go a long way to giving you some uh, some peace of mind. Especially with disruption, this is the next uh, topic about delivery obligations, especially with transportation disruptions in the marketplace during COVID, because, you know, uh, providers or suppliers really uh, were sometimes strung out when they find that their contracts have time is of the essence clauses, which means you better deliver on time or else there's a penalty. Maybe it's a, maybe it's a declaration of breach. Maybe it's the whole contract is up in the air. So be careful for time is of the essence clauses in your contracts um, and uh, make sure that if it's there, you're going to deliver on time. If it's not there uh, or if you see those as you're negotiating, I would I would tend to highlight them and take them out where you can 
just make sure that you're providing you know providing those on a reasonable basis. The the question that came up in the Q and A is is the UCC one only good for uh, products or can it apply to services? Uh, the answer is that uh, that is provided by Article Two of the Uniform Commercial Code or the UCC, and that only governs the sale of goods, not services. So there may be other ways to protect your protect a credit line for services, but typically not uh, in this fashion. I hope that answers the question. Um, think about surcharges, by the way, for price relief, going back to what we said about pricing earlier, especially when there's a lot of volatility in the market. The allowance of a surcharge that's going to provide for transportation or other input uh, changes in pricing might be an avenue that you use to, to raise prices when you've got some sort of fixed pricing or limited fixed or limited ability to, to change pricing in your contracts. That is a, I, I did that successfully for a client over the last couple of years. This is not to say the customers don't squawk about it, but given what went on in the market, uh, that it was, it was, you know, we're at, it, it stabilized some of the discussions for sure. Let's move on. Now that we've talked about contracts, let's go to the, the next big area that we see, at least in our practice, in the mid-market mid space, and that is employee relations and labor. Um, you know, we're in a whole new environment with, with work from home, remote work, and hybrid schedules. Um, so it, it provides a new challenge uh, to companies, as I'm sure you've experienced, where it changes expectations on the employee side uh, it becomes a challenge for managers who aren't used to managing remote employees. Uh, and there's a lot of cultural issues that I think uh, occur as well. And then, you know, employees read what's in the news. And when other companies like Google, uh, Facebook and others are doing maybe more progressive things in terms of remote work, uh, maybe they're going to expect it too in the mid-market space if that's where you are. But what I tell clients is that, you know, rather than trying to chase Google and, and Facebook and others, or respond to threats by employees. I think you have to decide, you know, what your culture is and how all these arrangements are going to work. Because once you decide what the culture is and what your basis is, your foundation, a lot of the other answers become more evident and they're more easily explainable to your employees. But by the same token, and this go this is where we put the legal hat on is don't be held hostage by employees. It's I think you know giving people flexibility is great, but when they demand things that you can't do as a as a company. You're not required as a matter of law to provide uh, remote work or, or hybrid schedules, um, except when you're talking about disability accommodations, that might be an avenue that you use. Uh, but just uh, you know, deal with people in a rational way, but don't, don't feel like you're held hostage. To the extent that you do allow people to work from home or work remotely, that doing so means that wherever they're working from, in particular their home is gonna become their workplace. So if they get hurt during the course of the workday at home, uh, or if uh, they're treated in a certain way, which would be illegal under the statutes while they're at home, home is their workplace. So keep that in mind and shape your, pro you know, shape your processes, your technology and your, and your, uh, your practices accordingly. Um, in particular, when it comes to cybersecurity and records retention, you gotta keep in mind that uh, folks are gonna have limited ability to store information and documents remotely in, in an effective way. Uh, we've all seen uh, people that just have their documents strewn out on a home desk, which makes them available to just about anybody who walks by the desk or they leave their computer on and unlocked. And they often use their email, which is also available on phones in many cases as their storage uh, mechanism. 
I, I, I would tell uh, anybody who asks that you ought to think about new ways to help people save information in a more effective way so that the company can manage it um, in a more you know holistic way, if you uh, so to speak. That is to, to impose records retention uh, policies on those documents, prevent them from getting hacked or stolen, uh, and have a and have a, a holistic way to protect. <coughs> excuse me, your company's cybersecurity as well. When they're working from home, uh, you got to make sure that the software is updated, that the same type of functionality is available from a cybersecurity perspective as they work remotely. So it becomes an IT challenge for sure. But when we talk about insuring companies for loss, this is one of the places that they that they have the uh, a huge potential for loss. And I think the investment, both in terms of policies that we as lawyers can help with, uh, working in tandem with HR, of course, and IT, but making sure that all of these policies sort of fit together with the technology and the software and the protective devices that the companies use. You know, when we talk about work from home and hybrid schedules, um, we start talking about how, you know, certain sectors of companies, especially the blue collar uh, sectors of your employee population start to feel, uh, you know, a little bit disenfranchised or treated, uh, you know, less favorably than the white collar folks. Um, you know, folks that are in manufacturing environments, retail environments, uh, distribution, warehouses, et cetera. Those are folks that can't work in a hybrid environment in many cases because they it's a hands-on job or it's a physical job. Um, and as a result, what we've seen, uh, and we can pull many examples like Starbucks and, and, um, and Amazon, among others, we're seeing a lot of, you know, these uh, little fires of unionization. Uh, Facebook, I'm sorry, uh, uh, Starbucks has been in the news quite a bit where some of their individual uh, locations, which are corporate owned, are being uh, organized by unions. Amazon warehouses, same thing. Although those companies are fighting them, you know, pretty valiant fight to prevent unionization, it, ha it is happening in certain sectors. The more that employees read about the unionization, uh, the more there's an opportunity to start thinking about it themselves for their own workplaces. And you've got a lot of open ears at the unions that would certainly uh, certainly listen for sure. So, what I what I would tell clients uh, is, and, and the folks on the call today is that what you need to do is is figure out a balance in your organization. Uh, that is a balance in terms of how you're treating people, um, a balance in terms of how your pay and other benefits fits in the market that you operate in. And do your best to avoid uh, unionization by promoting the good things you're, that you're doing. Keep an ear open for you know murmurs and uh, side conversations about about unionization. Certainly, if there's somebody that's trying to organize a vote, that's that's the type of thing that you get council involved in early for sure. Because there are some things that you can do to to minimize the chance that a, that a a union gets elected uh, or slow it down in some cases. There are too many possibilities and too fact sensitive a, a situation to really talk about uh, today. But suffice it to say that you know, being ahead of these issues is going to be um, an important consideration for management. So keep your ears open for unionization for sure. Now, if you've got a unionized workforce already, uh, and I, I've negotiated bargaining agreements uh, very recently with several unions, is that we see and hear about a lot of increased uh, dissatisfaction among union ranks. Just a lot of sort of negative activity, a lot of uh, 
you know, uh, acting out, if you will, more grievances for sure. Um, and I think union folks feel like they've been empowered somehow by what they read about in the news with the Starbucks and the Amazon stories, among other things. And they also read about the tight labor supply and they think, well, we're empowered. You know, if the company wants it, the company has to use us. And if they want to use us, they're going to have to pay more. What's interesting about that, though, is that the union environment doesn't really lend itself to that kind of flexibility to, for, for unionized workforces to take the benefit of what's going on in the marketplace. So they don't necessarily uh, benefit from tight labor supplies or they don't benefit from uh, you know, the, the elasticity of the market because they're in an environment that is governed by an agreement, is governed by precedent or history. Um, so they don't they come walking in sometimes into bargaining for a new contract or a, a renewed contract, but they don't quite have as much uh, firepower as they think they do. So if you're in that type of an environment, <clears throat> be ready, in my opinion, for what can be sort of a protracted uh, bargaining for a new contract. I tell clients and we're actually I'm actually starting one tomorrow uh, for a client where we've been planning for several months, but we're gonna start renewal bargaining six months in advance of uh, expiration of the contract. So starting as early as you can, get some of these negative discussions and early discussions out of the way, and so you can really get to the heart of the matter. Be, also be prepared for what you might view as unreasonable demands or proposals from the unions to, at the outset. Um, and that, you know, getting those out of the way and getting some of that angst off the table early is going to help you get a little bit closer to a resolution of the contract. But again, start early because it may be protracted, especially if you're in a Teamster environment, by the way, keep in mind that the, that, uh, the Teamsters are hyper-focused on the, the UPS bargaining that's going on in Washington right now. A lot of folks are talking about a possible strike. Uh, I can't tell you personally uh, how likely it is that there is a strike, but there's a lot of serious talk around it. Uh, a lot of, lot of uh, you know, chest beating and a lot of uh, posturing for sure by both sides. So who knows what the reality is unless you're in the bargaining room. But uh, if you're in a Teamster environment, expect your business agent to be a little bit distracted. Expect uh, UPS to potentially go on strike later in the summer if that's uh, one of your transportation providers. Uh, so you may, you may be thinking about alternate uh, alternate transporters and other and other ways to get around the strike if that happens. Um, one thing we've done, uh, or one thing we do with one of our clients is to have monthly labor management meetings with the union. What those are, uh, it's a series of uh, meetings. We do it once a month. Uh, we talk about grievances that have been filed, resolving grievances. We talk about issues that pop up on the floor of the, uh, the manufacturing environment. It's really an open forum where the business agent uh, the stewards, management, uh, labor relations all get together in a room and they talk about whatever the issues are for that month. Um, and it provides, I think, a little bit of a, of a tension release so that you can resolve uh, more issues in a more cooperative way uh, without as many arbitrations or, or any arbitrations, just so you know. So um, it's a great way to just take some of the tension out of the relationship. Another place that I want to focus everybody's attention is in restrictive covenants, that is non-compete agreements or non-solicitation of customers and employees. Uh, California, for example, has been uh, at the forefront of being very employee friendly in this, in this uh, area. 
by statute, those restrictive covenants are void. Uh, some states are pushing in that direction. They start, the, like you've seen uh, uh, some states that, are, that have made uh, non-competes for low-wage workers uh, illegal. Uh, but what we've seen at the national level is the NLRB, the National Labor Relations Board, uh, has been pushing the idea through a, a variety of decisions that uh, would legislate, in a sense, through the agency that uh, non-competes are void as a matter of law. Um, there's there's a recent NLRB decision on May 26th with, which pushes this idea in, a, in part because the general counsel of the NLRB uh, issued an opinion that essentially said unless uh, a, a restrictive covenant is focused on uh, something that's protectable by the company, it's going to be void. That is really kind of what, how state law has really evolved over time, that is to say, uh, states that allow non-competes, which is virtually everything, everyone besides uh, California, uh, would allow reasonable restrictive covenants that's focused on a protectable interest that the company has. So it doesn't sound like it's so far off what we're dealing with uh, usually, uh, but what the NLRB is trying to do is, is sort of shrink what is protectable and wh what is the right subject matter for a restrictive covenant. So this is something that I think is still developing. There's a proposed rule uh, by the Department of Labor that would uh, that would invalidate non-competes on a national level, which I don't know that it's going to go very far. But uh, the current administration is really pushing this very employee-friendly position through multiple avenues. So this is something to uh, keep in mind and keep your eyes on. Um, but I think it also motivates uh, companies to think about rather than fighting uh, or perhaps before we fight, you know, let's decide what's really important. What's critical? What's not critical from a from an intellectual property or a customer protection standpoint? And shape our agreements. That we're going back to contracts now. Let's shape our employee agreements to be tight and focused on what's important to the company, rather than slapping a non-compete or a non-solicitation clause on every single employment contract that we issue. Doesn't make sense many times. It sets the wrong tone sometimes, and and results in more fights or more you know, administrative time that's focused on these issues as employees come in and out of the company. So I think sitting down and reviewing your employment contract to determine what's important to you uh, and what's actually enforceable and really having a tight agreement uh, would be time well spent. By the same token, though, if you decide that having a non-compete or a non-solicit uh, non, uh, covenant in your agreement uh, is important, you might as well enforce them or be prepared to enforce them because, you know, drafting a, a, a clause like that or having any of your agreements and never intending to uh, enforce and enforce it just doesn't make any sense. So if you're going to have it, enforce it. If you if you're never going to enforce it, you ought to think seriously about whether you really want that clause in there or not. Again, this is about a culture issue and it's about shaping your your agreements around what your culture and what your business is. Cannabis legalization is a hot topic in the news, as you may have seen. Uh, I think we're up to 38 or 39 states uh, in the in the United States that allow recreational use of uh, cannabis products, um, and several others uh, also allow uh, prescriptions for cannabis. So you've got a lot of employees that may be using cannabis products outside the workplace uh, and coming to work with cannabis, you know, or THC that is in their bloodstreams. Um, so it's an issue we have to contend with for sure. Uh, and it can be a nightmare if you don't manage it the right way. 
So what we tell uh, clients to, to do, um, or what we suggest they do, is to really find the right balance. Because if you don't, if you stick by your traditional, uh, you know, traditional policies and practices of not allowing anybody with a positive test for marijuana to be an employee or remain an employee, you may be missing a large swaths of the employee population that could uh, work for your company. So you may have a labor issue. So what we, what we suggest to clients is that we find the right balance that works for a particular company. Here's the elements. Number one, no usage, possession, sale at the workplace. We want to have a drug-free workplace, even if it's prescribed marijuana. You don't want it in your workplace. You don't want people using it for sure. And you definitely don't want uh, employees to be intoxicated at work. In order to manage that, you have to train managers to understand what are the, you know, what are the, the signs of intoxication uh, from cannabis use, because it's not the same as alcohol use, that's for sure. In terms of testing, uh, clients are testing people at the application stage. Uh, they may be testing them randomly, although that's a that's a very difficult uh, regime to manage unless you've got a process for sure and a good vendor. Uh, and they may they may be doing testing at other other times in the employee life cycle, like post accident. So what we tell clients is number one, if if it's not important to the company at the higher stage, don't bother testing for it. All right. Um, number two, if you're ever going to test for THC, you ought to think about it in the uh, in terms of having uh, testing available to you post-accident or when you find somebody that appears to be intoxicated, again, having trained your managers. Um, and whichever you decide to do, again, we're finding we got to find the right balance for each company. Let's have a policy in place that's very specific about what we're going to test for, what we're not going to test for, when and how it gets done, uh, and what happens if somebody refuses uh, to participate in the testing, assuming that uh, the reason is legitimate. Again, prescribed cannabis doesn't get any special treatment at work. Um, it may require an accommodation for off-hours usage if, uh, you know, if, the per if your policy is we don't want anybody to show up with a positive uh, THC uh, result in their blood, it may require an accommodation so long as it doesn't negatively impact um, uh, an employee's performance at work. So they can't be intoxicated, even though they may have been prescribed the cannabis, but you may have to, you may have to provide an accommodation to whatever your policy is. So keep that in mind. This is going to be a lot like an Americans with Disability Act analysis in terms of accommodation. And lastly, uh, more and more states, this is a problem if you discriminate against applicants uh, based on their off-hours usage, so long as they're not intoxicated at work. So uh, we haven't seen very many cases on this issue outside the prescribed cannabis uh, situation, but keep in mind that it may. It, they, what we're seeing is statutes that, for example, in New York, that prevent you from discriminating against applicants based on off-hours usage. So keep that in mind and know what the rules are in your jurisdiction. Hiring the recruitment issues, and we can talk about that uh, that wage issue in a minute um, on wage and hour lawsuits. Um, actually, before we get to that, I'd like to respond uh, to one question, which is, can we talk about uh, or can we enforce a policy about use and possession when employees are working, working remotely uh, from their homes? Um, so enforcement may be uh, a little bit difficult unless you're actually going to visit people or you see people on a Zoom call. 
but certainly you can have a policy and should have a policy that says, you know, the, the if you're working from home, your workplace is home uh, and you shouldn't be using uh, cannabis or other intoxicating uh, substances during the workday, for sure. Uh, don't forget that when people travel for business, uh, the, the car, the plane, the hotel, the, the customer site, the conference, those are all extensions of the workplace. So your policy, if, you, if you've got people that travel, should also indicate that they shouldn't use it uh, while they're traveling as well, or at least while they're on the clock while they travel. So the answer is you can have a policy, but I think enforcement's not gonna be that easy uh, unless you can show that people are you know, showing up to a call intoxicated or they get caught, I suppose, uh, it, it, to the extent they're getting visited by their manager at home. But definitely your policy should and, and can uh, cover work from home. Criminal background checks in terms of hiring and recruitment is, a, is uh, I guess it's less an issue than it was maybe three or four years ago, but just keep it in mind that uh, in many states, not all, uh, the employer cannot conduct uh, a criminal background check of an applicant before the uh, company has issued an offer or extended an offer to that client. So keep that in mind. So the, the, the process is interview the person, uh, conduct the uh, the background check, at least on the criminal side, after the offer's been extended. You can certainly look at credit and DMV checks with assigned authorization before the offer, uh, but just keep in mind that especially if you're dealing with, uh, we see this a lot in manufacturing distribution environments where people have got some sort of a criminal background, do the check after the, after the offer uh, has been issued. Um, and, you know, when you think about low-wage workers in particular, you may think about reevaluating your criminal uh, criminal record policies, because if you're going to exclude everybody who's got a criminal record, you may be missing out on rehabilitated folks or people that had minor infractions in their past, which don't really impact their, uh, their current ability to be a good employee, uh, especially with a tight labor pool, for sure. Uh, here's another uh, area that came up recently for me, and that is collecting demographic data on employees. I think you got to be careful uh, when you collect this information that you've got an, a real reason or a good reason to collect it. For example, if you have to, if you're a, if you're a an employer that's obligated to produce an EEO one uh, statement uh, about your EEO procedures and your policies, etc., and your and your workforce then uh, you certainly have a legitimate reason to collect the information. If you're not required to do those things and you're, and you're collecting that information solely to, to show what the diversity is among your workforce, I think you have to document why you're collecting the information so that you're not accused of discriminating on the basis of any of those demographic factors. So think twice uh, before you collect the data, why you're doing it, and make sure you got a policy in place for it. Um, just want to talk about uh, the wage and hour issue. So protecting the company against wage and hour lawsuits, the, the best way to do that is to ensure that you're properly uh, characterizing all of your employees or classifying them as exempt versus non-exempt under the Fair Labor Standards Act. Uh, FLSA is the act that provides that employees who work on an hourly basis or basically that employ employees are assumed to be entitled to overtime for more than 40 hours of work in a given work week unless they fit into certain exemptions. So what I would suggest folks do is make sure that you've got job descriptions for each of your positions and you've analyzed them for FLSA compliance. That's the best way to avoid uh, and protect uh, companies against uh, wage and hour lawsuits for sure. 
then wage and hour lawsuits, um, the, the second area that you look at is making sure that people who, <clears throat> excuse me, are not exempt, that is eligible for overtime, are, are getting the overtime that they're uh, entitled to. So having accurate uh, timekeeping mechanisms, time clocks, or applications, whatever it is you want to use, making sure that people are getting properly compensated for all the hours that they work. Managers should never uh, try and demotivate people from recording their actual time, especially if they are um, non-exempt folks. So if you're doing all those things and you're properly uh, paying people uh, for the overtime that they, uh, that they work, uh, you're going to have cured 99.5% of your issues for sure. If you're a California employer, by the way, keep in mind that uh, employees that are non-exempt are eligible for overtime after they work eight hours uh, in a day, uh, not just 40 hours in a week. All right. So there's a different trigger in California. Just want to mention PEO. So if you're having difficulty managing a lot of these uh, in, uh, employee relations issues, including the few issues that we're talking about today, PEOs can be a good solution uh, to, to managing payroll, benefits, uh, the overtime issues, leave issues, among other things. What A PEO is a professional employment organization uh, that becomes the employer of record for purposes of taxes and filings, among other things. They'll provide the benefits, they'll process payroll. Uh, but I want you to just be cautious to think that just because you're outsourcing that, to a P, that function to a PEO doesn't mean that your company is insulated from claims because you're still an employer or a joint employer when it comes to how, you know managing your employees. So there are still claims there, and PEOs are not going to uh, manage claims uh, much beyond the the initial stage. And in many cases, your company is going to have to indemnify the PEO because because again, it's your managers and your personnel that are managing the employees. So the PEO is a good administrative mechanism, but it's not going to be a cure all for all these issues. Real estate issues, I just want to mention, you know, it's time to really, really evaluate your workspace. And I think that, you know, uh, this cycles back to the HR issues that we talked about before, but I just want to focus on uh, managing your, your real estate. And that is during COVID, I think a lot of companies may have thought that uh, they could take advantage of landlords and get concessions and not pay their rent and those sorts of things. A lot of those issues have probably washed out by now, uh, but just keep in mind that, um, you still got to pay your rent and you still got to live up to the lease that you signed, even though you may not be using or fully utilizing your, your workspace. But as you get to uh, near expiration, I'd say within the, the 18 to 24 months before expiration, uh, the, that can be an optimal time to really reshape your work, your workspace um, and shrink it, change it, uh, you know, get investments by landlords. Uh, especially in, in places like New York and other big cities where you've got low utilization rates. You know, it's definitely a, it's definitely a tenant market in many, uh, in many jurisdictions. Um, keep in mind that many of your landlords may be in deep financial problems or, or on the verge of it. But again, realize that if you've got a lease, you've got a binding agreement, and it's only by uh, amendment or agreement with your landlord that you're going to be able to reshape those leases. So the, the sooner you think about that, the better. Right. Um, one thing just on the employee relations side, uh, the question was, if what if you mandate that all employees take a 30 minute lunch and they don't? Uh, it's in the handbook. Uh, can we subtract the 30 minutes uh, from their pay? Well, when you uh, I think this issue only really relates to uh, 
hourly or non-exempt workers uh, because of their salary, they're going to get paid for the day or the week, really, if they, so long as they work at all during the week. Um, and this happens, the, I've seen it most recently in California in particular, that's got a little bit stricter rule on this. You know, the answer is that you should require people to take 30 minutes uh, and, hand, you know, if it's unpaid, that's fine. Uh, but if you know that an employee works during the 30-minute period or you ask them to work during the 30-minute period, you have to pay them for it. All right. Now, you can caution them on it because there may be a safety or cultural reason or something else you want to make sure that people are taking their 30-minute lunch. But if you know they performed work or they, or they prove to you that they performed work during the 30-minute period, uh, you have to, uh, you have to uh, pay them for it. For sure. Cybersecurity, we talked about just again, this is a lot about employee behavior protocols. Make sure that your cyber insurance benefits uh, or are understood or your resources are there. Uh, making, making sure you've got the right cybersecurity policy uh, for your particular workplace. Um, but also make sure that you're training your employees, quite frankly, because uh, just because you have insurance doesn't mean you're going you're gonna to get uh, sort of a, an all-around insurance policy, if you will. I think what I'm trying to say is that cyber insurance shouldn't be your only mechanism to attack this risk. You have to train your employees because a large share, if not the majority of cybersecurity problems are because of employee mistakes. They get an email they shouldn't click on, they get an attachment they shouldn't click on, uh, they do something else that's in violation of your cyber uh, protocols. So make sure that you're training employees on what the expectations are. With that, um, that is uh, the extent of our uh, presentation for today. Um, so I'd like to make sure that we're covering all of uh, the questions that we have today. Uh, I think we've covered them. Just to review, uh, protecting the company against wage and hour, or hour lawsuits, we've, we've covered that. UCC1, that is the protecting trade credit lines. That's really only for products, not for services. By the way, uh, I want to mention one little caveat to that. That is, if you've got a trade credit line in which you're uh, extending trade credit for goods and services together, maybe the services are ancillary to the products, uh, you can certainly protect that trade credit line together. Now, whether that's going to survive uh, in the bankruptcy, if there is one of your customer, uh, will, some, will be something that the bankruptcy court uh, deals with. But I think in large part, you're going to have that trade credit line uh, protected the, the focus will be on whether the products that you supply are the, the the core or the major part of what's protected by the trade credit line. But again, if you've got ancillary services, I don't think there's any reason to think you're not protected there as well. All right. On the employee side, we talked about, you know, can you enforce uh, a policy against use and possession of, uh, you know, marijuana or cannabis products when they're working remotely from their homes? I just want to amend slightly what I said. Your policy can prohibit the use of it uh, during work hours from the home where that's their workplace. And you can certainly uh, prohibit the uh, intoxication of employees during the workday when they work remotely. Whether whether you could prohibit them from possessing, you know, remotely, I'm not sure that there's any benefit from that. If they're legally able to possess it uh, under state law, um, and they're working from home, I doubt there's any policy that you could uh, use to prohibit them from you know, exercising their rights under, um, under state law. 
Don't forget, by the way, that there are some industries. Uh, the, the one that always comes to mind is, is the trucking industry where truckers uh, do not enjoy the benefit of state law that uh, allows them to use cannabis recreationally because they're subject to drug testing as part of their CDL. So irrespective of what goes on at the state level in terms of, um, you know, in terms of uh, marijuana use, it's not going to trump their, uh, the federal obligations when it comes to their CDL license. Oh, another question, uh, any comments on the GDPR if the company has European operations and employees? Um, I'm, not, I'm not sure what you're asking, unfortunately. I mean, certainly GDPR, which is the general data protection regulation out of the, uh, the EU, uh, it, it's much more stringent in terms of protecting uh, employee, uh, um, employee information, access to uh, work-related email accounts of employees when they're in Europe. Um, there's a lot of issues that come out of the GDPR question for sure. Uh, I guess I would say to you is that you need to make sure uh, that you're in compliance uh, with GDPR, but focusing on where is uh, where's your data being housed and what kind of data would be transmitted between the United States uh, and Europe. Understanding exactly how that information flow works uh, and where the information resides is going to be really important to, uh, to determine whether you're in compliance, for sure. Next question that came up, uh, what's the likelihood of prevailing in an employee termination if they use marijuana during work hours? If they sue for wrongful termination, will you most likely be forced into a settlement? You know, what I tell clients is, uh, you know, don't don't feel like you're forced into a settlement from the get-go on, on any employee relations matter, quite frankly. But it's, you know, whether you decide to settle matters uh, or whether you how you resolve employee relations issues is really going to depend on the facts of a particular case. Um, but I would tell you that um, it's, it's, number one, if you've got a suspicion that somebody is using uh, marijuana, uh, remember, we could be talking about smoking it, vaping it eating it because they're edibles of course um if they're it's all about conducting a, a full investigation of whatever facts you're presented with and then how you handle it from there uh you know uh goes on uh from there or that the facts really will dictate what the outcome is for sure but i would tell you that if you've proven um you know it, it, not beyond a shadow of a doubt because that's the criminal standard but it's called by a preponderance of the evidence where it's more likely than not that someone did use marijuana or you have an admission that somebody is using marijuana during the course of the day, even on a lunch break. Um, if you've got a policy in place that prohibits it, prohibits somebody from using it uh, either in the workplace or during the work day, uh, then, you've, then I think you've got a basis uh, to terminate. But the question is gonna be, what's your policy? That's where we always start from, you know, building the foundation of how you manage employees by having clear and concise policies that are available to everybody is really where you should start. You know, and I think that really the, the policies that you have really flow from uh, what is your culture for sure. Um, so understanding what you can tolerate, what you can accept, what's okay for your culture is really important. But I think uh, as a general matter, whether you're in a, in a very loose organization or a very strict organization, you just don't want employees uh, using cannabis during the workday. And you certainly don't want them using, using them in the workplace, regardless of the form. Uh, it's just bad form. It's bad for morale. It's bad for productivity in general. Uh, that's my stance on it. I don't want to sound like uh, you know a relic uh, in terms of how I think about these issues, but 
uh, I would tell virtually every client, if not every client that I work for, that your policy should prohibit it uh, during the course of the workday. And what people do on their off hours um, or what people do outside of the extended workplace, remember at home or on, on business travel, uh, is, is sort of their own business unless you've got a real work reason like the CDL license to prohibit them from using it. Having that policy in place uh, is really, really important for sure. And then again, dictating what you want that policy to say is up to you as a company. Um, so uh, next question is, do I think non-compete or non-solicitation clauses, including in a stock purchase agreement for private companies would stand up if, if challenged? That if a non-compete or non-solicitation clause is ever gonna be enforced, it's definitely gonna be in this context. Because it, it, just the, the way the law has developed is that when you have a, a restrictive covenant that's really part and parcel of a business sale, uh, it has always been given uh, the greatest uh, level of enforceability because it's part of the consideration for the purchase of the company. The buyer never wants the seller to go out and start competing on day one and just rebuild another company that looked exactly like the one it just sold because it takes a lot of the value out of the company or the assets that were bought. So, you know, I think this is really a developing issue um, the, 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 the discussion I had earlier about what the NLRB is doing and what the Department of Labor is doing um, are really these, you know, the, the spearheading by the administration to try and uh, push the idea of invalidating these on a national basis. Um, it's, it's really the first step in that. Uh, where exactly it's going to go, I'm not sure. But I still think that non-competes uh, and non-solicitation clauses outside of California are going to be enforceable. Uh, and in some cases, even in California, where it's part of a business sale, I think there's ways to get these uh, these types of clauses enforced. Uh, but I think they will stand up. That's my opinion anyway. Um, most favored nation clauses or most favored customer clauses, uh, why are they legal? Uh, many large CPG uh, suppliers push for these or CPG, well, CPGs, I'm, I'm assuming those are uh, suppliers. Um, they push for them and then they parse out business uh, to co-manufacturers and co-packing companies who have very different business risks. Yeah. I'm, I'm not really sure. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm not really, Beth, I'm not really reading the, the question. Um, so, I mean, most favorite customer clauses um, are certainly legal uh, for sure. That, you know, where you're, where you're basically saying to a customer, hey, I'm going to give you the best pricing based on your volume or based on your the nature of what you buy. But I tell clients, though, it's awfully difficult to enforce sometimes. Um, so really be careful about what you're going to uh, what you're going to offer to customers in terms of a most favorite customer clause. Um, what I've seen over time, by the way, is that even when you find those in contracts, the the uh, the likelihood that they're going to be audited uh, is, is very small because of the costs involved, but that doesn't mean you won't be audited at some point. So I, I would think long and hard before I agree to a most favorite customer clause in a contract. But Beth, if you, if you have uh, some, some issues you'd like to talk about offline, I'd be happy to do that. Um, so I think we're at the end of our time for today, but I, I wanted to thank you again uh, for the opportunity to share some ideas with you. Again, these are my uh, experiences in the course of representing a wide variety of manufacturing uh, services companies, even uh, tech companies uh, in the mid-market space.
But uh, as I said to Beth a moment ago, I, I'd love to have conversations offline with anybody who's got other questions or just wants to share ideas. My contact information is here and I'd invite you to reach out. Back Thank to you. So much. This concludes our first session. Thank you, Mr. Clark, for joining us today.